599. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verses 2 through 8. I sleep, but my heart is awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, Open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I have washed my feet. How can I defile them? My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door, and my heart yearned for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the lock. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls, they took my veil away from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell, uh, that you tell him I am lovesick. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. And if you're visiting with us again, we welcome you. How wonderful it is to have the new uh, individuals and families with us that were announced this morning. We are so thankful for you, and we're so glad that you're here. We look forward to serving God together, as has already been mentioned in the prayer. What a blessing we have to be in the community that we are in, and what an opportunity we have to be in this community at this time. And let's continue to serve God together and simply strive to be exactly what God wants us to be. We want to be that here, but we also want to be it in our homes. And so uh, we've been looking at a short series of lessons out of the Song of Solomon, a book where from the beginning, the first verse to the last verse at the end of the eighth chapter, it's a book where God says, let me show you a picture of a love story. Let me show you how I intend for a man and a woman to be attracted to each other. Let me show you the way I want them to spend time together and things that I want them to restrain and take out of their relationship and things that I want you to put into their relationship. Coming to the end of the third chapter, we see their wedding and we see how God would like for a wedding to be. We go into the fourth chapter and the honeymoon is not just brushed over, but it is described in detail. And as we've already mentioned a couple of weeks ago, it may come to a surprise to us, but yet it ought not because the Bible is real. The Bible comes to our day-to-day -day life. And so it ought not be a surprise that when we end the honeymoon and it's summarized in the fifth chapter in verse 1 and 2, the very next verse, what's it going to be? The very next verse is conflict. That's right. After the honeymoon, what takes place? Conflict. I heard a guy speak a few weeks ago, and as he was speaking, he said, you know, I was always told that if you could make it through your honeymoon, everything would be great if you didn't have a fight on your honeymoon. He said, I was so nervous on the honeymoon thinking we were going to have this big knock-down, drag-out fight, and he said, the honeymoon went well, and I thought, well, we have it made. He said, a few weeks later, I had some time to kill in the middle of the day, and I stopped at a new uh, automobile dealership. Just going to kill some time. He said, next thing I knew, I was driving the truck of my dreams. He said, the next thing I knew, I was saying, I'm going to give you an offer. I know you can't accept it, but here it is. And they accepted it. He said, the next thing I knew, I was driving home. And as you can imagine, he had an evening full of conflict. Now, some have wondered, does this conflict carry over to the animal kingdom? Uh, I guess this picture right here proves that it probably does. 
But um, no, let's go ahead and move from that picture. But it, it kind of makes us wonder. It makes us wonder if God knows that we're going to experience conflict, surely He addresses it. He does. Surely He gives us solutions for conflict, and that's what we'll study this morning. We can't cover everything about conflict resolution. The truth is, we could have a series of sermons for months long as we talked about aspects and things that need to be considered as we think about the resolutions. But this morning, we can cover some things that are talked about here in Song of Solomon. But I want to begin with this in mind, and that is how we need to accept, number one, the fact. I live in a relationship that experiences conflict. If we're not willing to be honest enough with ourselves to say that, we're probably not going to be willing enough to be honest with ourselves to resolve conflict. Maybe you've heard individuals say, well, I can tell you what, we just never have any kind of conflict. There's a few things going on in that relationship. It may be, number one, they're lying. And maybe they're unintentional with that lie, but it could be that they're lying. Because the fact is, no two people see everything the same. There's no way that a man and woman are going to get married and they're going to come back from their honeymoon and they're going to say, this is unbelievable. You know what? We like exactly the same foods. We like exactly the same restaurants. You know, when we were looking for homes, we like exactly the same kind of home. We like it to be decorated exactly the same way. And when it comes to our family automobile, we both picked out the same exact automobile and the same colors, accessories. Well, you would know just hearing that much that something's wrong with a couple that's talking like that. Someone's not being open and honest. If we're going to be honest with individuals, we're going to have conflicts with individuals. Now, the second thing that might be experienced when someone says that we just don't have any conflict, it could be that there's no intimacy in that relationship. When we use the word intimacy here, we're not talking about necessarily the physical relationship. We're talking about the blending of lives. You see, if you and I are even going to be close friends, the closer we are to each other and the more our lives are intertwined with each other, the more conflicts we're going to work through. Well, if we're going to be close friends with our spouse and we're going to live on a daily basis with our lives intertwined with our spouse, that ought to be our very best friend, we can rest assured that there are going to be conflicts that have to be work through. I think about a cartoon I saw one time. It's just one frame cartoon. It was two old guys playing cards. And one looks over the top of his hand and he says to the other, yeah, since she lives in Florida and I moved to California, me and my wife hadn't had a fight in two years. Well, with that kind of separation, you can probably avoid most conflicts. Some people actually live in the same house, but yet they're separated. They're more like roommates under the same roof. And those people can literally brag of the fact, oh yeah, we hardly ever have conflict. Why? Because their lives aren't intertwined. In other words, they don't have a healthy relationship. They don't have the relationship the way God designed it. A third thing that might be taking place is that a relationship can come to the point where one domineers the relationship and the other serves, if you will, as a doormat. Maybe early on in the relationship, the one that has become completely passive, at one time maybe stood up. Maybe, maybe they asked for things the way they thought that they ought to be. But because of abuse, whether verbal, emotional, even physical, the one has decided the only thing that I can do is just let him or her always have their way. 
Now, friends, that's not at all the way God designed relationships, but those people can eventually boast of the fact that says we never have conflict. I want you to imagine in your mind the couple that you say, in my mind, that's what I want to be. They just seem like the perfect couple. I know when Tracy and I were newlyweds, we used to watch this couple walk into church together, and we'd go eat in their home, and they were so impressive. They'd been married almost 60 years. He was a corporate leader in his community. He was a very strong leader in the church. And he was a little white-haired man, and his wife was a real little petite blonde. And here they were pushing 60 years of marriage, and every time they come walking in the church building, they had their arms swinging together. They were holding hands. And you just looked at them as a young couple and says, I want to be able to experience that after 60 years of marriage. Picture in your mind who you think is, they just got the marriage that you say, that's the kind of marriage I want to have. Now picture over here a marriage that you say, that marriage is just barely surviving. And then you say, what's the difference in the two? There's a lot of people that would say the difference is, this one is full of conflict and this one never has conflict, and that's not true. They both have conflict. It's just one has learned to resolve the conflict in a healthy manner, and the other has not. So I beg you, let's not look at conflict as if we're an ostrich with our head in the sand that says, oh, we just don't have it. We just don't have to worry about that. Let's pull our head out of the sand and say, you know what? If I'm going to have the close relationship with my spouse that I want to have, we're going to have conflict. Now let's make sure that we can resolve this in a way that God would want it to be resolved. Let's go back and let's read in the fifth, uh, fifth chapter, verse 2 and 3 and, and 4 and 5. And let's see uh, this moment of conflict. If you'll keep in mind that Song of Solomon is written in poetry, and so we have to be able to go in and see the symbolism. And once we see the symbolism, the story just unfolds. Also, we'll make a few notes as we read along through here, some cultural differences that would be different for us today. She says, beginning in the second verse of the fifth chapter, she says, I sleep but my heart is awake. Here she's calling Solomon her heart. In other words, she's fast asleep now, but her husband is wide awake. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, open for me, my sister, my love. Using a word sister here the way we do not use it, but simply mean one that is very close to him. Also, what's very different in today's society is that we're used to husband and wives sharing the same living quarters because they were royalty, because of the, the riches that he had. They did not share the same living quarters. And so as he's knocking here, wanting to enter in, he's not asking, can I come to my own bed? He's asking, can I enter into your living quarters of the house? And so notice here, he says, my dove, my perfect one, but then he describes what kind of day that he has had at work. He says, for my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. In other words, here is a man, royalty, the king. He's been out doing the business of the kingdom, it appears to be, all day long. And even this business has carried him deep into the night. We would say today this is a man coming home after a long, long day of work. The dew has fallen on his head. He's ready to come home to his bride. And he knocks on the chamber doors. And she says, I have taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. 
how can I defile them again? What's happened here? Our first thought would be flimsy excuses. You mean that she can't put the robe on that she previously had on? Keep in mind, she was asleep. He's disturbing her. Can she really not get up and open the door and then go back and wash her feet as to not mess up the sheets of royalty? With deeper thought, most of us, and exactly as for sure you women, would probably understand that there was probably a lot more that happened that day. We don't know. The poetry doesn't tell us. But this woman is probably hurt. She might have thought that he was coming home for a special evening, for a special dinner. She might have thought that he's been late several nights this week. She might have looked forward to spending time with her husband after marriage, thinking that now we are married, I just don't get to see him like I would want to see him. You see, her answers here are probably not completely honest. She's probably not at this point saying, I'm just unwilling to put a robe on or walk across the floor. But she is saying, because of the hurt that I've experienced, I'm rejecting you right now. Conflict. It happens to the best of couples. I don't know of a greater opportunity to experience and practice Christianity that in the boundaries of marriage. Marriage gives us so many opportunities to practice Christian characteristics. In other words, if you'll think with me at this time, I, I want you to think about just some basic principles that probably most of us here know these principles. And think about how they could be experienced at this time The second greatest command, love thy neighbor as thyself. You see, here when conflict is when both parties feel harmed. You think both of these feel harmed at this point? Absolutely. We don't know all the details of why she feels harmed, but she feels harmed. We know he has to feel harmed. He's come in after a long day, and he's ready to see his bride, and she won't even open the door. He feels rejection. But what if both of them at this point could say, pause for a minute. We're godly people. Let's practice the second greatest command here. Let's love the other as we love ourselves. Let's practice the golden rule here. Let's do unto the other as we would have them do unto us. Let me try to figure out what is the pain that she's experiencing right now. Maybe he, she could think of him. What is it that he has gone through today? If they both could just practice the golden rule, or if they both could be unselfish. You remember that Jesus was the one that said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So if we truly are Christians, we're unselfish people. That means we're unselfish also with our spouse, where we can honestly say, it's not all about me. I'm very much concerned about you. I'm very much concerned about us. And you know what else we learn? We learn another basic principle in Christianity, and it's called the extra mile. 
going the second mile. For whatever reason at this point, she's not willing to go that second mile. And the conflict is churning. But note this. When we see times like this, what is so important is that we do not begin to mirror the emotions that are about us. Look with me, if you will, to the sixth verse. As we look in the sixth verse, she says, I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. Do you see what's happened here? Solomon had to make a decision. At this point, Solomon was being rejected. Have you ever been to the point where at the time that your spouse or someone you know or love has said something, and you immediately answered out of anger instead of answering from a clear thought of what is right? Instead of practicing the second greatest command, the golden rule, instead of being unselfish, instead of going the extra mile, we answer out of rage, out of anger. Let's go with what we know out of the book of Song of Solomon, okay? And let's just pretend. We can make up a scenario out of the things we know out of the book of Song of Solomon. She could have said, I can't put on my robe. I'm not going to defile my feet across the floor. It's his house. He could have barged in. And he could have begun his speech about, have you forgotten where you've come from? And do you remember who got you here? Just take a glance down at your dark arms and look at the fact and be reminded that I'm the one that rescued you out of a vineyard. I'm the one that took you when no other royalty would take someone that looks like you. I'm the one that has brought you to this place of royalty. I'm the one that's given you all this and you're afraid of defiling royal sheets when I'm the one that's given them to you? Maybe you need to go back home to your mama and maybe you need to work in the vineyard tomorrow and then you'll remember how you got here. Oh, a spouse would never say cutting things like that. Or would we? Would we literally say things that cut our spouses to the quick. A great lesson to learn from Solomon at this time is that Solomon would not mirror the emotions that were stirring. She rejected him, and maybe she did so because of something that he had done earlier that day. But the point is, somebody at the time of conflict has to stop mirroring. Someone has to say, I want to do the right thing. And what did he do? He walked away. Why did he walk away? Because she told him to walk away. She told him, I'm not putting my robe on. I'm not coming across the floor. So he decided to do something that required a lot of discipline, a lot of wisdom, and a lot of long-suffering. Now what's neat when we read in Song of Solomon is we can read other passages this same man wrote. I'd like for us to go back and see three passages that he wrote about these very same things. Not 
necessarily in the same context of husband and wife, but definitely in the context of relationships. And notice what he says in Proverbs the 16th chapter. Proverbs the 16th chapter. Notice the discipline that he speaks of. He says in verse 32, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Now, as you know, the book of Proverbs, oftentimes there'll be what appears to us two sentences in the same verse. In other words, two sentences in the same proverb. And the the two sentences are given to bring a little bit of clarity, but there's not a whole lot of clarity. It's almost like saying the same thing again, and it's for emphasis sake. And this is one of those proverbs that are written in that form. And so he talks about what to them would have been something very common, and that is a mighty man. Remember, his father had 37 mighty men that were the closest around him. They were the warriors that he depended on to protect him and his royalty. And when he needed a job done, they were the go-to men. And so mighty men were hailed in that day and time. You remember his father, when he would go out and slay a whole city, he would come back into town and people would talk about, the ladies would sing how Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. They knew about mighty men. They knew about men that could destroy cities. And they promoted those people in their society. And Solomon writes and he says, I want to tell you about something that's better than a mighty man. It's one who doesn't speak from anger. Well, what does he speak from? Notice the next phrase. He speaks from his own spirit. In other words, we don't mirror the other person's response. Whether it's with your spouse or a co-worker or a neighbor, this week all of us will probably be provoked to say something out of emotion. And I beg us this morning to stop and say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be disciplined enough that when someone says something, I'm not going to mirror what they say, but I'm going to pause for a minute, and I'm going to reflect what I, as a child of God, ought to say, and I'm going to say what I believe is right to say. I'm not going to participate in the moment of emotion. Let's go to the next chapter, the 17th chapter, and look at verse 14 as he speaks of wisdom. He says, The beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. What great wisdom when we know how to deal with contentions. Right now, if I had a container of water in my hand, and I said, at what point would be the easiest time to to, uh, clean up this disaster? And I started going like this right here. All of us would say, well, the easiest time is just stop before you start spilling it. When's the time to fix a canal? Or when's the time to repair a dam? We all know the time is before it starts leaking. When's the time to build sandbags and build up the edge of a, of a river or a stream? We all know that the time to build it is before the water actually stops, starts to flood. Solomon here is teaching us in Song of Solomon, and now he's teaching us in Proverbs. He says, try to stop contention before it ever starts flowing. Someone says, but you don't realize, that's that's just the way my family is. We need to realize, that's not the way God's family is. The characteristic of strife, verbal abuse, those are not godly characteristics. 
We need to stand up and take responsibility for our actions. We need to be willing to say when we're wrong, I'm wrong and I want to stop it. I want to repent of it. And I want to do better in the future. And the way to do better in the future is to not say that's the way I am, that's the way my family is, that's the relationship my spouse and I have, but instead say, I want to be wise. I want to avoid the contention before it ever starts. But notice this third thing. To do that, we also, as we go over to Psalms, I'm, I'm sorry, Proverbs 26th chapter. Go to Proverbs the 26th chapter, and let's look at verse 20 and 21. And notice how we, we have to be willing to suffer long here. In other words, it's not about, I tell you what, I'll put an end to this contention whenever they do things my way. I'll put an end to this contention whenever they apologize to me. I'll put an end to this contention when they put an end to the contention. Someone has to step up and say, I'm willing to suffer long. In other words, I'm willing to be the one that's hurt. In this particular case, she was the last one that spoke up. She offered rejection to him. He was willing at that point, rather than create further strife and further contention, he was willing at that point to say, I'll suffer that. I'll take that rejection, and I'll give her the space that she needs at this time. Notice as we read in the 26th chapter of Proverbs, where there is no wood, the fire goes out. Where there is no tailbear, strife ceases. As charcoal is to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. It's as simple of a proverb as this. If there's going to be a fire, there has to be fuel. If you want to stop the fire, stop fueling the fire. Someone has to be the one that says, I'm not going to mirror this anymore. I'm going to be the one that stops putting the fuel on the fire. Some of you will probably remember what I'm talking about because if you saw it, you didn't forget it. Several years ago, there was a poster and an advertisement encouraging people not to drink and drive. And I don't remember the exact words, but it showed a picture and it said, not everyone that's involved in an accident related to alcohol dies. And it shows what at first glance, I thought, when I say sickening, that's an understatement, and I thought it was tasteless. Because I thought the picture they were showing was of a deceased person. And you could tell the person had died in a fire. And it had this picture up in the corner that was much smaller of this beautiful 21-year-old girl. And then it showed her after the fire. But then, when you saw the advertisement on TV, you realized she hadn't died. Even though she had no nose, no ears, and no hair, and you could not even recognize the fact that what was on her bones was skin, she was alive. As I study this passage, and I think who would do that to someone they love? And probably most of us would say, I don't think anyone would do that to someone they love. But how many times do we keep throwing fire verbally, emotionally, on our spouse? How many times have we burned up our spouse? How many times have we reacted with, if you do that, I can top you, I can do this? All to create destruction. We're just not thinking clearly. 
And that's the beauty of Christianity. Christianity helps us to settle our thoughts. Christianity helps us to think what is true instead of what is a lie. Christianity helps us to prioritize. Christianity helps us to do the right thing. And so let me give you just a summary of these last two points here. As we go back to Song of Solomon in the fifth chapter, what happens is they both feel injured. He gives her time because he will not mirror what has taken place. Now she gets up and she hunts for him. And as she hunts for him, we read in the fifth chapter, read with me verse 7. The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am lovesick. Now, if we were going to go back and study other poetry, there's a real neat thing here, and that is the aspect of the watchmen. Watchmen were not... Rogues. They weren't uh, vandals out in the middle of the night. Watchmen were the ones that stood up in the towers and they watched and protected the city. They looked out for enemies that were to come and they made sure that the people inside were safe. Now tell me something. Why is the watchman here wounding her? When we go and we see the same author, Solomon, write in Psalms 127 and 1, we see that he also speaks and he uses the same idea of the watchman and it's people that either represent God or they live their life in a representation of God. And notice he says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. When we go back to Song of Solomon, we see in the third chapter, before their wedding, she was going about and she was searching for the right man, for the right kind of man to marry. And it was the watchman that helped her find her godly husband. What's the point? The watchman is a representation of God. He didn't stay back to punish his wife. Please get this point, because you may not have ever heard this point in your life preached. He didn't stay back to punish his wife. He allowed her godly conscience and God time to do it. That's the beauty of being married to a Christian. And it's a fact that nowhere in the Scriptures do we have a right to punish our spouse. Nowhere. Godly parents punish children, but godly spouses never punish each other. It's not our place. Well, they did wrong. Okay, we married someone that did wrong. It's not our place to punish them. Well, what do we do? Just hope they grow closer to God. And if they grow closer to God, their godly conscience in God. Remember Hebrews 12th chapter, God will chastise people. And what happens? Now she loves her husband more than ever. Now if you read the rest of the fifth chapter, she wants to find her husband. When she goes searching for him, you know where she's going to find him? He's back at mama's house. No, he's out carousing with other women. No, you're going to find him out doing his work in his, what's called in poetry, his garden. It's his kingdom. He's out there with his citizens. He's back to where he needs to be. The point is, in time of conflict, we need to do the right thing. Will we have conflict? Absolutely. There's going to be times that we both feel harmed. What do we need to do? Someone has to stop mirroring that situation of feeling harmed. Someone has to step up and do the right thing so that there can be a change of heart. And the result is a blessing, tremendous blessing from God. This morning, are you right in your relationship with God? Wouldn't it be terrible if you were at conflict with God? We can be, but we also can resolve that conflict. If you're a believer that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you're willing to repent of sins and confess before men, won't you be baptized into Christ this morning?
Maybe you've been baptized into Christ and you've allowed something to separate between you and your God. You can resolve that this morning. God gives a way of redemption. He's a loving God that welcomes us home again. Friends, we can't walk this earth alone. And if we try it, we're going to find our life and our lap full of conflict. Conflict is bigger than we are. You need to come home this morning. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing. Oh, to be like thee.